Can y'all hear the kids screaming, or is that just me out the out the back door? Man, as a pastor, you love to hear the sound of kids in church. That's why we're here this morning, so that you can have an experience at church that brings you closer to God. I don't know where you are spiritually in your life today, whether you came in really far from God or close to God or maybe kind of in between that spectrum someplace, but our goal is when you leave today that you're closer to God than when you walked in, or at least you have a plan to get you there. Let me ask you a question. Am I the only one who has ever had an argument with the little GPS machine that is in some people's car or that you can, that you can purchase when, you, when you're in a rental car? Am I the only one who has yelled, I mean, raised my voice to a little machine that's not even a real person, or, or does that happen with that? Has anyone else ever done that? You know, is, is, it, uh, is it just coincidence that the little lady in the box is always a lady? Is that because women love to tell men where to go when they're driving? I mean, every little GPS machine I've ever had has been a woman telling me what I'm doing wrong and, and where I need to go. And it's funny because neither one of my cars has a GPS machine in them, but I have a woman in my car who tells me where to go every time that I drive. Her name's Danielle. You, you saw her here. And I live about two miles from the church, and at least once on the way home today, she'll tell me where to turn as if I haven't made the drive a hundred times. I love GPS machines when I don't know where I'm going. They annoy me to death when I know where I'm going. And I get, when I get within where I'm supposed to be going and I know where it is, I just turn them off because I, I don't like being told where to go, especially when I know that I'm going there. But if I'm traveling someplace that I, I don't know where I'm going, I love to have someone tell me exactly how to get there without me putting any effort to finding out the way. And wouldn't it be nice in life if we could just end up where we're supposed to be without ever having to pay attention to where we are and where we're going? We just have somebody turn by turn tell us where we're supposed to go. You know, I think a lot of us live spiritually like we have some kind of GPS machine in our life. We think if we just get up and come to church if we just become a Christian, if we just live our life, we will, we will get to the destination that Jesus has set out for us in life. But you know what? It doesn't happen that way. You don't accidentally become all that Jesus wants you to become. You don't just one day wake up and enter the destination that you're supposed to be at spiritually. The Bible says that it's a process that begins with becoming a Christian but then has several critical steps as you move forward. There's a roadmap for your life spiritually. I don't know if you knew that. And if you hit point A and point B and point C all the way to the letter Z, you will get exactly where Jesus wants you to go. But the question today is, where does Jesus want you to go? You know, the destination of Christianity is not heaven. I mean, that's, that's where we all hope to go one day when we leave this earth. But the goal of Christianity is not for us to go to heaven. As a matter of fact, Jesus told us what the goal of Christianity was in Matthew chapter 28. If you have your Bible, I want you to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 28 right now. If you don't have your Bible, our ushers are going to come down the aisles. They've got Bibles. If you forgot your Bible today, if you don't have a Bible, just wave at them. They'll give it to you. If you don't have a Bible, this is yours to keep. Keep it. We want you to have it. If you just forgot your Bible, use this and then put it on the table as you leave. We, but we want everyone every Sunday morning to have a Bible in their hands so we can open God's Word and read it together. And in Matthew chapter 28, we see Jesus tell his disciples the goal of Christianity. We see Jesus talking to his disciples, and to set this into context, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. There are four books in the New Testament that tell the story of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're called Gospels. And we're in the very last chapter, in the very last two verses of Matthew's story of Jesus. For those of you who are familiar at all with Christianity, Jesus was born of a virgin. 
He came, he was baptized by his cousin John the Baptist. He did three years of incredible ministry. He was arrested, he was beaten, he was crucified, he was buried. He raised again and walked on the earth for 40 days, telling his followers what his church was going to become. But on his very last day, at his very last moment, he gave his disciples a charge that we call the Great Commission. The greatest challenge ever given by one man, Jesus, to any other man, 11 disciples who were left at the time. And here's what he told them they needed to do in order to get to the destination of where he wanted the world to go spiritually. Matthew chapter 28, we're in verses 19 and 20 in the New International Version. And Jesus said, therefore go and make disciples. I want you, if you have your Bible, to underline that that word disciples, circle it, highlight it, put a box around it. Get a tattoo of it. Whatever you have to do to remember that word, disciple. I want you to hang on to that word today, disciple. If we just gave you a Bible and you have a pen, underline it in that Bible. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You know, there's a word strangely missing from that charge to the disciples in Matthew chapter 28. And it's a word that's probably the most widely used word in churches today. But Jesus never used this word. And it wasn't a word that he told the disciples to use. As a matter of fact, I've gone back and looked in every English translation of the Bible. And there's dozens of them. Every English translation of the Bible of the Great Commission. And not in any of those translations is this word used. And it's the word Christian. Really interesting thought when you think about it. Jesus didn't tell his disciples to go make Christians. Now, my name is Christian. And, and, you know, my mom and dad, since I was young, have bought me bookmarks and posters. And, you know, I know what this word means. A Christian is a follower of Christ. That's what the word Christian means. And you would think that if Jesus was giving his disciples a charge, he'd say, hey, go make everyone a Christian. But he didn't do that. Matter of fact, that's not his word. That's not even the church's word. Several years after the church began, more than a decade after Jesus had had left the earth to go back into heaven, the word Christian was used for the first time in the New Testament. One of the apostles, his name was Paul, had gone and he and some of the other disciples had started a, a Gentile church in a city called Antioch, which was north of Jerusalem and in another country. And the people outside the church started looking at these people who had become followers of Christ. And it says in Acts 11.26, it's interesting that the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. More than a decade after Jesus had left earth was the first time this word was ever used in our church, Christians. And it wasn't even used by people in the church. No one said you should become a Christian. But people outside the church, when they were trying to categorize, hey, who are all those people that get to Golden Corral at about 12, 15 at the same time? What, what are all those people doing who, you know, gather together and leave? Oh, those are the Christians. They're all following that Christ, and they gave them that name, Christian. But Jesus said, make disciples. Now, if you look at a real quick definition of the word disciple, it's different than the definition of a Christian. A Christian, by definition, is a follower of Christ. A disciple, by definition, is a fully devoted follower of Christ. And you say, well, is there a difference? Well, I'll ask you, is there? Do you know a Christian who really seems to love Jesus with everything that that they have? A Christian that really seems devoted to Christianity. And do you know someone who calls himself a Christian who maybe goes to church a couple times a year? Maybe they say they love Jesus, but you watch their life and it doesn't appear that they do. Both of them call themselves Christian, but one, one's really, a, I mean, really passionate about their Christianity and one just carries the label. 
You see, the, the original term Christianity was, was a label. It was not what Jesus wanted the disciples to create, Christians. Instead, he said, create disciples. You know, there's multiple categories of Christians today. Even in the church world, we use these, this, this terminology. There are people that, that I call personally heaven Christians. The only reason they are a Christian or consider themselves a Christian is because they want to go to heaven one day. And that, that might be why you became a Christian, because you want to go to heaven one day. That is not a, a, a bad reason to become a Christian. But that's not the only reason you do become a Christian. And, you know, more than 80% of the United States of America a decade ago categorized themselves as Christian. You know, at one time, being a Christian was just like being American. But that's, that's not really what Christianity is about, just wanting to go to heaven. There are people, you'll hear this term thrown around church, who are C and E Christians. Have you ever heard those, those terms? They're C and E Christian. And you know what that stands for? Christmas and Easter. It's the only time they go to church. They go to church on Christmas and Easter. They are C, we, we call them in the church world C and E Christians. That's why on Christmas Eve this year, Christmas Day is actually on a Sunday morning. We won't have church on Christmas Day, but we'll have several Christmas Eve services. And we'll put out way more chairs on Christmas Eve than we will the next Sunday at church. You know why? Because all the C&Ers got to come to church on Christmas Eve. And on Easter, we'll set out twice as many chairs as we normally set out. Why? Because a bunch of people come to church on Easter that never come to church any other time. They'll even go buy a new outfit for it for the one or two times that they come to church. They're C&E Christians, but they have very little spirituality, if any. Then there are people who are committed. The, the world would look at them and say, you know, they're, they're pretty committed. They go to church every Sunday. They never miss. They appear spiritual in the way they act. But then there's this term disciple. And a disciple's not in any of these categories. A disciple doesn't just go to church. They actually serve at church. They make the church happen. They're doing ministry, either in the church or outside of the church. They read their Bible when, when they're not at church. Most Christians, the only time they ever, ever open their Bible is at church, and some, some don't even do that. But these disciples, they, they try to read the Bible every day, if, if they can, or, or at least more days. They, they read more days than they miss. These people may listen to Christian radio. These people, you know, probably you find them praying over their meals, not when they're just at Thanksgiving dinner with the family, but they have this attitude and this habit of prayer in their life. And they're seen as radical and weird by all the other Christians. We look at them and say, man, they're just, they're like on the radical fringe. They're like really into Jesus. And the church world chastises them for being over the top. But the unchurched world looks at them and says, now, that's what a Christian should be. And if I was a Christian, I'd either be all in or all out, and they appreciate and respect true disciples that, that are all in. And I know you all understand what I'm saying. How many of you know someone who considers themselves a Christian, but you look at their life and see no spirituality? Probably all of us. And all of us know someone who considers themselves a Christian, but we look at them like Mother Teresa. I mean, they're like the greatest Christian in the world. There's differences, there's levels. But Jesus didn't say, go and, you know convert some people and get some people to come to church and find some other people that will serve and you know, maybe some other people that will just come Christmas and Easter. Jesus said, go and make disciples. You know, our church's mission statement, if you look at why we have started a church here, it's pretty simple. We exist to see people far from God become passionate Christians who make a difference in the world. We put that word passionate in there on purpose. Initially, we had the word disciple in there, and we thought, you know what, people who don't go to church, they don't, they don't know what a disciple is. So basically, a disciple is a passionate Christian. They're all in. Our church exists to take people from where they are spiritually to all in spiritually so they can make a difference in the world. And if you look at the first little church in the New Testament that ever existed, the first little group of people that ever followed Jesus, it was a group of 12. And we know them as the disciples. And even though probably all of us would pass on a test, how many disciples were there 12? 
A few years ago, they did a survey. More than 85% of all Christians couldn't name all 12 disciples or all 10 commandments. So, you know, I don't know that that makes you spiritual or unspiritual. But several times in the New Testament, they're listed. And one of those times is in Luke chapter 6. And I, I want to show you how Jesus called this group to him. And he began to build a group of passionate people who would fulfill their spiritual destiny and make a difference. In Luke chapter 6, it said, One of those days, Jesus went out on a mountainside to pray. And he spent all night praying to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples to him. And he chose 12 of them. And he also designated these apostles. Apostles means ambassador. These were his official spokesmen in the world. Simon, whom he named Peter. His brother Andrew, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, another James, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon, another Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and another Judas, who later became a traitor and, you know, betrayed Jesus and he ended up crucified because of Judas's actions. You know, a few years ago I did a pretty intense study on the disciples because I had this question for myself. I thought, you know, I'm a Christian. And I considered myself a committed Christian. But I had this question, could I have been a disciple in the Bible? Would my life, if you looked at my life as it is right now, and at the time I had been in ministry for a decade, if you looked at my life, does my life qualify, could, could I be a disciple or am I just a pretty committed Christian? And I found out as I studied the disciples, I thought, what made them different? And I found out they all took the exact same path in their life to spiritual impact. And they all had six things that happened in their life that allowed them to become who Jesus wanted them to become. And if you and I are going to go from where we are spiritually to all in making a difference, these are six checkpoints that we have to pass. And these aren't tolls that we have to pay. These aren't things that cost us any extra money. Some will cost us extra time. But these are, these are points that we pass in our path to spiritual maturity that show us we're going from where we are to where Jesus wants us to be. Jesus said, go make disciples. Well, how does that happen? Six things happen to make these disciples the committed Christians that they were. And I, I want to focus on that word commitment for a minute because that's what I'm going to ask you to begin doing. If you're going to become a disciple, you're going to have to commit to do six different things over a period of time in your life. Do you know that commission... And commitment actually come from the same Latin word. It's the exact same word. A commitment, by definition, a commitment is a state of being obligated or emotionally compelled to pledge to do something. A commission is being given permission to fulfill a commitment. So Jesus' great commission was nothing more than a great commitment. Really, a, the great commission was a great commitment. This is what these guys decided to do. Jesus said, I give you permission, go do it. Step number one. If you're going to become a disciple, and hopefully everyone in this room has taken this step, and if not, by the end of today, hopefully you will have, you have to commit to follow Jesus. And I want you to write that word follow in all capital letters on the sermon notes that you're taking. Because follow is an action word that's more than saying a prayer, that's more than believing something, that's more than hoping for something. It's an action word. They committed to follow Jesus. Matthew 4, 18 through 22, we see the calling of the first four disciples. Peter and his brother Andrew, James and his brother John. It says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting nets into a lake, for they were fishermen. And that's how you fished 2,000 years ago. They didn't have rods and reels. They threw the net out and brought the net back in. Come and follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. 
They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets, getting ready to go fishing. And Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. They actually moved from where they were. When Jesus said, follow me, they moved from where they were to a different spot spiritually. Let me ask you a question. Where have you moved spiritually since you begun your relationship with Jesus Christ? Y'all remember that movie, Madagascar? Did anyone, if you have kids, you've seen Madagascar. In Madagascar, it's a movie about these, actually, I don't even remember what the movie's about. I think some animals who escape from a jail, or maybe they live over there, or not a jail, a zoo, and they end up in Africa. Something like that. And there's this crew of, like, squirrels or something, little weird little animals. And they sing this song, the whole movie, and they dance to it. You've got to move it, move it. Have you all ever heard that song? You've got to move it, move it. And they, uh, they have these huge celebrations out in the African jungle. That's Christianity. Christianity is moving forward spiritually. Leaving who you were and becoming something brand new. Rick Warren is the pastor of Saddleback Church in Lake Forest, California. He's one of my favorite men spiritually. I just love to read everything that he writes. I, I have so much respect for him. And he said this about Christianity one time. He said, it doesn't matter where you are. Where you are isn't important. It's just as long as you're not where you used to be, you're headed in the right direction. You may not be where you want to be, but if where you are is not where you used to be, you're headed in the right direction. Have you begun to move forward spiritually? In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul wrote to a church in the city of Corinth that he had started. And he said, here's what it means to become a Christian. He said, anyone who belongs to Christ, anyone who's become a Christian, they should have become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has now begun. What has happened in your life to make it brand new? What has begun to change in your life? You know, maybe you weren't a murderer like Paul was who, you know, became a great follower of Jesus. Maybe you weren't like Matthew, one of the disciples, a tax collector who was, you know, involved in basically white-collar fraud. He was ripping off people. He could have worked at Enron. But your life should be different. You know, as I look at my life, I was raised in a real conservative Christian home. You say, well, you know, uh, you know, did you have to change a whole lot when you became a Christian? Well, not, not a lot to become a Christian, but when I really began to follow Jesus, my life began to change. You know, one thing I used to really struggle with, and from time to time I still do, was road rage. I mean, when people drive the speed limit in the left lane, I mean, I'm not sure what the left lane is for or what the speed limit is for, but I know they don't go together. You know what I'm saying? On the highway, the speed limit's 60, and you're going to drive 60. You're not supposed to drive 60 in the left lane. That's for people who want to go 60 and a half and get there just a little bit faster or maybe set their cruise control at 4 or 5 over, hoping that a cop won't pull them over if they see that gauge on their speedometer as, as, as they go by. And I used to struggle with that. Man, I'd honk at people and yell at them, and, you know, here I am, and I'd go zooming by them with a Jesus fish on the back of my car and a middle finger out the window. And, I mean, that's a great message, right? It's like, hey, Jesus loves you. It's like, what, you know, what's up with that guy? That was me. I struggled with that. I mean, I was a Christian. I was going to heaven, but I hadn't followed Jesus enough with that. I struggled with the type of music I listened to, and, and when I say the type of music, the lyrics and the music that I was listening to were, were not good. They were not something that my children could listen to once I had kids. My language wasn't always appropriate. My humor was horrible. Listen, I used to know and tell the best dirty jokes in the world. But people tell me, now, hey, Christian, you have a funny joke? And I always say, not that I can tell, because I can't tell the kind of jokes that I used to do. And I used to be so sarcastic and, you know, I, but I would be negative and witty and I'd knock on other people. And, you know, I just, I, I had a tongue that hadn't been tamed spiritually. 
And God had to come along, and as I began to follow Jesus, the closer I got to him, he said, you know, you really shouldn't do that when I'm around. Because he's the guy, if he would have been around you, you'd have to ask him to leave the room in order to tell that joke. And I thought, you know, I don't want to ask Jesus to leave the room anymore. I don't want to ask him to step outside the car for a few minutes while I get around, you know, this person doing 54 in a 55 zone. You know, I can't do that. And boy, when it really began to hit me is when I had children. You see, when you have kids and they begin to act like you, and you see them doing things that you don't like, and then you realize they're doing it because you do it, well, your life really begins to change. I'll never forget, and, and I, ha- I don't use foul language anymore. I haven't used foul language in a really long time. But, I, you know, I don't use spiritual language all the time. And when my son was in first grade, and I'd spell the word, but the kids who are in here know how to spell, so I'll just say it. When my son was in first grade, he got in trouble for saying crap in school. Teacher told him to do something. He said, that's crap. I thought, oh, no. You know? And when I heard it, you know, my first reaction when, you know, when the teacher called and said that, my first reaction was crap. You know, I mean, that's what I said. And I'll never forget, you know, he didn't learn that from Dr. Seuss. He didn't learn that from baby Einstein. He learned it from Danielle. Uh, You know, that's what I told the teacher. Listen, no, I'm kidding. He learned it from me. And I thought, you know, that's not a word that I minded saying. That, di- that word didn't make me feel bad spiritually. But for my son to say it, that's not who I want him to be. That's not what I want him to say to his first grade teacher. And I realize I've got to follow Jesus a little more closely. Why? Because the Bible says in Ephesians 4, don't let there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking in your life because these are out of place. And I know a lot of Christians who probably don't talk like they should all the time. But guess what? As you begin to move it, move it spiritually forward, you'll leave those things behind. Step one, you've got to commit to follow Jesus. That's not just saying a prayer. That's not just becoming a Christian. To become a disciple, you've got to move from where you are to where you need to be. Step two, and this is through the life of the disciples. The second thing that the disciples did, after they followed Jesus, the second thing they did was they committed to a group that was growing spiritually together. I find this so interesting that both when the the core group of the disciples began and when the first church began in Acts chapter 1, they didn't begin in solitaire. There was no superstar Christian leading the group. It was a group of people that said, let's do this together. In Luke chapter 6, 13, when morning came, he called his disciples to him. He chose 12. He chose a group because he knew they grow more in a group than they grow by themselves. Acts 1, 5, when the church was beginning... To get started, it says during this time, about 120 believers were together in one place. There was a group. And this group together said, let's go change the world together. A church cannot forgive you of your sin. A group can't forgive you of your sin and cleanse you. A church cannot save you spiritually. And a church can't change you. I mean, I'll I'll be honest, there's nothing that I can ever do or say to change you. There's nothing that this church will ever do to change you. But God can do all of those things. But a lot of times he works through groups. And when groups come together, they have a much larger impact on the world than somebody would have by themselves. A church can help you begin to grow spiritually. A church can help you mature spiritually. How? By learning the Bible. By opening it up and, and, and reading from it. In a few weeks, we're going to launch our church, our grand opening, September 18. We haven't even invited the whole world yet. We'll do that September 18. And on that day, you say, what are you going to do on September 18? I'm going to open the book of James, and I'm going to begin to teach through the book of James. We're just going to teach the Bible. Because we believe as people understand the Bible that their lives 
will begin to change. A church will give you relationships through serving together, through going on mission trips together, through doing small group Bible studies together. We met this week on our student ministry and trying to figure out what we're going to do to get our teenagers in groups so that they can grow together spiritually. uh, We had a crew of women meet last week trying to figure out a women's retreat for this fall so that women could get to know one another in a group. Why? Because when that happens, things begin to move forward spiritually. Groups are important. Relationships are important. Any of you remember the show Cheers with Sam Malone? I used to love that show. And, And the crazy thing is I had to watch that before I was 10. I don't know why my parents would let me watch a show about a bar in Boston, but I used to love it because Sam used to pitch for the Sox and the bartender was... You know, kind of an old coach. And I used to love the theme song of Cheers. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. You see, that happens so often every place but church. And you walk in church and no one knows you. And no one cares about you. And they're just hoping you give a little in the offering. And maybe once a month help in the nursery. And you think, you know, I'm being used. At our church, we want to connect you to relationships. Because people do really want to go where everybody knows their name. And they're always glad you came. I mean, that, that would be a great theme song for a church if it hadn't already been used for a bar and a TV sitcom a few years ago. I love that thought. A church is a football team, not a golf team. You can go play golf by yourself all day long. But to really move the ball down the field as, as a football team, you, you need other people on your team. And that's the way Christianity is intended to be lived. That's how discipleship happens. So Jesus took the disciples and he said, follow me. And then he took his disciples and he said, get together and let's do this as a group. And then number three... He taught all of his disciples to commit to spending time alone with him. This is probably what I miss more than anything about not being able to live in the time that Jesus was alive would be spending time with Jesus alone. Just just having ten minutes to sit and pick his brain. And you know what's so interesting is to see how far the disciples had to go spiritually. You know, if you would make a statement today that, you know, people, people who go to church, a lot of them don't know how to pray... You would say, you know, that's blind. That, is, that is really talking down to your congregation. But you know who didn't know how to pray? The disciples. The disciples went to Jesus. I mean, they hung out with Jesus every day. And the disciples went to Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 and said, can you teach us how to pray? We don't know how to pray. You know, we tell people all the time, you know, you ought to pray every day. You say, how? Like, what, what does that look like? What should I pray for? People don't just know how to pray. The disciples didn't. Will you teach us how to pray? Remember when Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus? These were two pastors, first century pastors. And Paul said, make sure you know how to read the Bible and apply it to your life. Here's Paul telling young pastors, here's how you read your Bible. And we stand up at church and say, go read your Bible every day. And people say, well, like how? I mean, if you opened it up and got stuck in Leviticus, you could read your Bible for a month and not learn anything. I mean, you would just think that you were reading a different language. Or go, go read in Numbers or Chronicles where there's just lists of a thousand names that you can't pronounce. It's why at our church, because we can't teach you every Sunday how to read the Bible, we give away this Bible every week for people who, who want to learn to read the Bible. One-minute Bible for starters. It gives you a verse and then kind of tells you what that verse means. Because you have to teach people how to spend time alone with Jesus. The disciples didn't know how to. How do you pray? Like, how do you know all the stuff you know about the Bible, Jesus? And Jesus would, would teach them. He talked to them. You know, when you meet someone who's really in love with Jesus, they almost seem weird, right? So what does it look like a disciple to spend time alone with Jesus? Have you ever been in love? Do you remember being in love? Hopefully you're still in love. But if you're not, do you remember being in love at one point? you remember how much effort you took into getting somebody's attention when you were in love with them? Phone calls, the letters, the text messages, the coffee. 
the flowers, the teddy bears, the cards. I mean, whatever you could do, right? Every waking moment, you wanted to be with the person that you were in love with. And when you weren't with them, you were thinking about them. And if you had to spend times away from them, you would constantly remind them through letters or cards or whatever how much you loved them. But I'll never forget when Danielle and I first met and we first started dating, the first extended break that, that we had was over Christmas break. And she flew to Ohio for a few days over Christmas break and we got engaged on December 28, 1998. I can remember it like it was yesterday. And I did something after we got engaged that I haven't done since. And I probably should do, and this is going to make me look horrible for taking for granted that I'm now married. But she had to fly back to Kansas City, and for like a week, we were apart. And I wrote her a a different letter every day of that week and put it in the mail because I was so in love. Now, even though I don't write you letters, I still love you like that. I promise I love you more. Promise. But when you're in love, you do crazy things. You say, when you fall in love with Jesus... It's not a struggle to read your Bible. It's not a struggle to listen to worship music. It's not a struggle to be at church or to pray because you just want to be around God and what He's doing in your life and in people's life. That's what spending time alone with Jesus is. It's like being in love with someone. And listen, if you don't spend more time with Jesus outside of church than you do inside of church, you're not going to meet this checkpoint of discipleship, becoming who Jesus wants you to become. Fourthly, Jesus made His disciples. He said, you've got to follow me actively. You've got to move. Second, you've got to get in a group together and, and we'll grow spiritually together. Three, you've got to learn how to spend time alone with me. Before, he said, you've got to commit to doing ministry with me. You've got to help me fulfill my God-given purpose on earth, which is letting people know about God and his love for them and his plan for their life. And man, can you imagine being picked first on the kickball team to go do ministry with Jesus? I mean, we've all stood on a wall when captains are picking, hoping we won't be the last one picked. Can you imagine if Jesus was picking teams spiritually? And he said, hey, I want you on my team, because that's what he's done. Everyone in this room is a first-round pick of Jesus as he decides who he wants to do ministry with him. In Matthew chapter 10, we see Jesus and his disciples. It says he called his twelve to him, and he gave them authority, gave them permission to drive out impure spirits, to heal diseases and sickness. Verse 5, these twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Don't go among the Gentiles or enter into the town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel, and as you go, proclaim this message. A kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you've received, freely give. Jesus said, go help people. You need to go out of here and tell people they can have a brand new life. You need to go out of here and help people who are hurting. You need to go out of here and lead people who are in some kind of spiritual bondage to freedom. You have authority. Go, go do it. And it's why we offer what we offer at the end of every service. We try to get people here engaged in ministry. Two weeks ago, we asked for people to head up with, set up, help with set up and tear down. You say, well, what is that? To us, set up and tear down is ministry. We want you to come do ministry with Jesus. Last week, we asked for people to help with, with ushering and greeting. And we said, you have a chance to sign up to, to do ministry as an usher or a greeter. You say, well, you just need people to shake hands and smile on people. No, we want people to do ministry with Jesus. Today we're going to recruit for our hospitality room for people who like to cut up fruit and lay out cheese and crackers. And they just, they're hostess and they're hosts and hostess. That's what they like to do. We're going to give you an opportunity to do ministry with Jesus by helping get our volunteer headquarter room ready. The next two weeks after this week, we're going to offer the opportunity for you to get together on a Saturday morning. And we're hoping to knock on 5,000 doors all over Lee Summit, Cass County to invite people to our grand opening September 18th. It's ministry. It's not stuff. It's ministry. That's why we try to find the nicest people in our church and ask them if they'll come be greeters. Will you smile at people and shake their hands? Because that is a ministry to them. 
There's going to be a lot of people who walk through the doors of this church who don't want to be at church. They haven't been in church in a long time. They've been burned by a church. They don't think highly of a church. They're skeptical of a church. And if we can just be nice to them before they get to the door, maybe they'll think this place is different and their heart will be open. That's why we do that. Ministry. Ministry. Your first ministry at our church, maybe it's to invite someone to our grand opening September 18th. That person that you have in your life that you really know needs God's touch on them in some powerful way. We want you to invite them September 18th. That's ministry with Jesus. Step five, after Jesus had these guys do ministry, and this is why the word international is in our church title. Journey Church International. I fought with some men in my life about putting this title in because they said everyone's going to think like you're a cross-cultural church and like your church is not for Americans. And I said, no, it's in there. Because our church exists to touch the world. Because, why? Because of step number five. Jesus' disciples all had to commit to global impact. Matthew 28, 19, and 20, go all over the world. True disciples go all over the world telling people about Jesus. Matthew 28, 19, 20, therefore go and make disciples of how many nations? All of them. All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Matthew chapter 24, this is called the Olivet Discourse. Because Jesus was on the Mount of Olives. It was the, the disciples asking, when is the end times going to come? And this was his answer. If you just want to read one chapter of scripture this week, go read Matthew 24. When's the end going to come? Jesus answers in Matthew 24. But here's what he said about the end coming. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end is going to come. Our church is designed to do ministry all over the world. And you need to know that. Why are we designed that way? Because we believe that's a step of discipleship that all of us are supposed to take. You know, I grew up thinking that missionaries were called to the Great Commission. They were the ones who went. We just clapped for them when they went. Jesus said, all of you go. Everyone is supposed to go. If I had enough money to charter a plane and give everyone in here two weeks paid vacation and to take you to another part of the world to serve for two weeks, it would change your life more than anything you've ever experienced. I promise you, you would be different forever that's why we're going to put together plans to allow you to do that that's why this week last week i told you we had a ministry call us that operates in the sudan they've got 40 pastors and i found out a little more about these pastors i'm going to show you a picture of them at the end of the service they have 40 pastors who as guys go through villages preaching the gospel as people become christians these 40 pastors then walk between 50 to 100 miles from village to village baptizing people and teaching them the bible trying to fulfill the whole great commission and they called us last week and said we have 40 pastors who need bicycles so they can get to the town every day instead of once a week. $4,000 can your church help. And we felt led because of how our church is given and because every time we take an offering, part of it is set aside to go to global ministry. We felt led this week on Monday to cut a check for $4,000 to this ministry and said tell those pastors to go every day. We're behind them. You see, last week, those of you who gave in the offering, you had no idea you were giving to guys in the Sudan, South Sudan, the newest nation in the world, so they could go do ministry. But that's discipleship. Recognizing that ministry is not just this gym, this community, this county, this state, this nation. It's the whole world. That's what true discipleship is all about. That's why we want to do what we're doing. And then step number six, maybe this is a tough part, but I love this part of discipleship. Jesus made all the disciples commit to mentor somebody he made him commit to mentor somebody and really the last true mark of discipleship is that you you replicate yourself you take somebody else and you make them a fully devoted follower 
of Jesus too. Churches miss this, I, I, I think. You know, the, the church has become about Sunday attendance, the, the number of dollars in the offering plate. It's not become about how many people have truly achieved these steps of discipleship and then how can we mentor somebody else to do it. You know, the word mentor is a fascinating word. Did, did you all, when you were in, in uh, maybe English class is what I called it when I was in school. I think they call it communication arts now because it sounds better in high schools. But we had two books. We were told they were the most famous books ever written by a man named Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey. You remember hearing those, those books? I don't know what they're about, but I, I know the names of them and I know that Homer wrote them. Well, in the Odyssey, in the Odyssey, there's a story of, of a young man whose father sends him on a faraway journey to, to basically go complete a big task before he can come back and take over the kingdom. And this sailing trip's literally going to take him around the world in order to come back and take over for his dad. And fearing that his son wouldn't make it, the dad hired a young man for his son to take his son around the world, and that man's name was Mentor. That's where we get the term from. It's an older person who can help us complete a journey. That, that's what a mentor is. It comes from that book. It's somebody older who's been there, who's done that, and can help us get there and do that safely and then get back. And so many of you have had awesome experiences in your life. And you know why you've had every experience? So you can take someone else on the same journey and get them back safely. Those are the steps of discipleships that Jesus wants us to walk through. Who's going to help the next generation do it? Hopefully we will. Let me let you in on a little secret. And I'll close the message with this. I am not going to be at this church for the rest of my life. And neither are you. At some point we'll all go do something different. It's just a fact of life. But if while we're here, we can work diligently to get through these steps of discipleship, guess what? We'll look back on this part of our spiritual journey and say, I truly became who Jesus wanted me to become in my time, not at that church, but in my time with Jesus while I was a part of that church. You want to know something else? These steps won't happen in your life just coming to church every Sunday. You come to church 52 Sundays a year and probably accomplish very few of these because you have to be specifically trained in so many areas to do them and do them well. So at our church, we've designed what we call a personalized spiritual growth plan. Because we said if our church isn't going to make disciples, then we don't want to have church. And we know that we can't make disciples by just having church. So what we've done is we've designed six classes that are going to be taught by six different guys who are real passionate about areas. And Phil, you can come on up. I'm almost done. And what we want is at some point in your spiritual journey for you to set aside three hours on a Sunday afternoon and take a class called Starting Point and realize what Christianity is all about. And then at some other point to get in a class called Spiritual Networking and to learn why the Bible says that friends are your greatest resource spiritually. And then to take a class called Discipleship where we'll teach you, like the disciples, how do I pray? How do I read the Bible? We'll teach you those things. Then to take a class called Leadership to find out how you're gifted, where you're gifted, and how you can use that to serve God than to take a class called Global Impact and actually buy a plane ticket and go someplace in the world with us, set your feet on foreign soil and love Jesus on behalf of the whole world. And then finally to enter a Christian legacy class and say, I'm going to live my life taking other people on the journey that I've been on. That is how the church has made it 2,000 years. If we don't get back to that, it's not going to make it. But here's the starting point. If you're in the room today and you've not started your spiritual journey, you're, you're not ready for the finish line yet, you need to get past the starting line. If you're in the room today and you've not become a Christian, you've not committed your life to discipleship, you've not said, I'm going to follow Jesus and I need him in my life and I need to be forgiven of some things and I need some new direction, 
then we want to give you the opportunity to do that. I'm going to ask you all to bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning. And with every head bowed and every eye closed, it's my greatest joy as a preacher not to give messages, but to get to this part of the service where I can help people begin their spiritual journey. If you're in this room today with every head bowed and every eye closed, and you're not even thinking about the finish line because you've never crossed the starting line, then today you can commit to follow Jesus. You can commit to begin your walk with this discipleship. You can commit to become what the church has called a Christian, even though Jesus wants you to get all the way there and become a disciple. Say, how do I do that? You recognize there's a need for God in your life. You recognize that your life certainly doesn't meet God's perfect standard, but that because Jesus died for your sin, you can be forgiven and you can start all over. And you just commit your life and your heart to Jesus and to following Him. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If you've never begun your spiritual journey, today you can do that. I'd like to help you do that. And I'd like to just pray a prayer. And I want you to repeat this prayer after me. You don't have to pray it out loud. You can pray it from your heart. Because the Bible says it's with your heart that you believe. Then later with your mouth that you confess. So in your heart, if today's the day that you're going to begin your spiritual journey, I just want you to pray this, dear God. I need you in my life. And I realize that I probably don't deserve it. But I know that Jesus died for my sin so that I can be forgiven and I can start over. Today, by faith, I ask Jesus Christ to come into my life, to forgive me of my sin, and to set me on a path to becoming a disciple. I commit to follow Him. Give me a new life. Give me new hope. One day, give me heaven and eternity. Help me to live for you. With heads bowed and eyes closed all over this room. If you just said that prayer today and began your spiritual journey, would you just raise your hand as testimony of it just so that I can know nobody's looking around. Just slip your hand up quick and down quick if you began your spiritual journey today. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you see today clearly the path of discipleship and you realize like I did two years ago, you've got a long way to go. Maybe you've been in church all your life. But you've got a long way to go. Today you can commit to the next step. Today you can see the path and say, you know what, I'm going to get there. Slowly but surely, I'm going to get there. Let me pray for those of you who need to complete the discipleship process. God, I pray for the men and women and the teenagers present here today. Lord, that you will allow us to become more than heaven Christians. People who, the only desire we have for our Christianity is to go to heaven one day. And to become more than a Christmas and Easter Christian who comes to church a couple times a year. And to become more than a committed Christian who's just involved in church, but to become a disciple. To follow you. To join a group doing it well. To learn how to spend time alone with you. To begin serving with you. To go all over the world for you. And then to take somebody else and help them repeat the same process. That's the desire for the people in this room. So Lord, help us to achieve that. Help our church as we get up off the ground in the next few weeks. We love you. I see things in Jesus' name today, and everyone said, Amen. Before we move and get ready to take our offering, here's what I want you to do. We handed you.